Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Whew, okay, let's get this thing started with prayer. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for you. Thank you for everything, just everything. God, this morning as we come together to listen, to speak, I ask that you cover all those things that distract us, the, the baggage that we carry into this room, God, and even, even my own, I ask that you cover those and that the words that I speak this morning not be my own but be yours and that you open up the ears of those here and those joining us online to hear the message that you would have them to hear in their lives. Speak directly to them. We love you. Amen. Okay, so this is a, a bit of a departure from my typical sermon that you you'd typically hear me hear, uh, preach. And I have a bit of a confession. I am, I am a history nerd, if you haven't noticed already. And today is going to be just me reveling in that history nerdness. So I hope that you can join me in that. For some of you are going to be like, yes, I love this. And some of you are going to be like, no, we're back in class. Um, I'm, we're, if, if that's you then just hold on for a little bit with me, because we are getting to a point. So if this starts feeling a little bit luxury, academic, just, just hold on with me for a little bit. We're going to get into this. What we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be looking deeper into the story of the Magi. And this is one of those topics that we never really discuss in depth, because it's, it's complicated. You see, there's there's a whole mythology that surrounds the Magi that's completely outside the Bible. Things that we tend to believe that aren't really even stated, but, I mean, we have to fill in gaps somehow, right? And so what's end up becoming the story of the Magi has grown to this place where it's almost like there are these fairy tale magic wizard characters that have entered into the Bible story. And and to scholars and historians, they've completely written it off to be kind of a literary structure, something that doesn't really exist. The Magi, the one quote from a scholar says, suggesting that Ma the Magi story might have historical basis is simply a no-fly zone in academic circles. If you want a career in New Testament scholarship and to be taken seriously, that is just something you don't discuss. And I really hope that you're getting the point that the story of the Magi is just so strange and it's so controversial. But we as Adventists are very proud of the history of how we look at the Bible and the fact that we take the Bible very literally in the, literally in the way that it talks about things. And if it says something, we should take it very seriously. And so that's why I want to dig into this story a little bit. And I want to draw your attention to this book right here. It's called the Mystery of the Magi, I know that uh, you can't really see the, uh, it probably very well, but it's by a guy named Dwight Longnecker, and this book came along in 2019, and it is completely groundbreaking. My little caveat to this is a lot of this sermon is coming from this book, and the reason that it's very groundbreaking is that it is the first time that there is a serious scholarly look at the story of the Magi and considers it as a true part of the story of Jesus. 
So we see as Christians the birth of Christ as one of, if not the most important events in history. If God miraculously invites a strange group of people to such an event, I would say that it's worth us knowing more about. Clearly a strong statement is being made by God, and and when we look at the Bible, when we take the Bible seriously as that, we have to see these pieces and say, this, we can't ignore this, because there's something important being said here. Uh, So, but here's another little caveat. When it comes to theories about Bible history, by the way, I would definitely recommend picking up this book. Uh, There's so much so much good information. I would say the most painful part of writing this sermon for me was trying to figure out what to cut out because I can't keep you guys till dinner. But I would definitely suggest picking up this book. It comes with a little bit of that caveat that when it comes to theories of Bible and history, there is a never-ending debate about what is appropriate, what can be taken seriously, and how we approach it. So um, I'm not going to be engaging in talk about what is interesting and or what debating or whatever, but I, what I found in this book is I found to be very interesting and very plausible. But here's the point. This book is not definitive by any means, but it is worth a little bit of speculation to better understand why the authors included this in such an important event. I think we benefit from looking back at history to see the incredible ways in which God leads in unlikely places to unlikely peoples. And maybe, just maybe, this will change the way that we see God working in our lives and working in the world around us. So let's get started. The way that I want to start this sermon is I feel like the, the way any good, real good biblical scholarship begins, and that's by just simply looking at the text. And so as we go through and as we read through this little section that that talks about the Magi, I want you to listen for clues. Listen for clues about who these people were, how they behaved, and what they did. So let's jump in. This story, if you want to uh, turn to it with me, is in Matthew 2, starting at verse 2. give you a second to turn there. Matthew 2, verse 2. Let's go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this He was very disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. 
and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead on in front of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures of presents with him, with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay, so you may have come up with your initial first thoughts. Here are some of mine that I came up with. Let's see. So first of all, from the east, right? It says they were from the east. That's a very important part of this. Possibly believed in king worship, right? Because they said, where is your king? We want to come worship him. This was not uncommon at all in the ancient Near East. They were honorable. They listened to God when they, when they were told by God not to return to Herod. They did it. That plays an important part later. They were scholars. They read through the scriptures. They knew the, their scriptures. Interestingly enough, uh, later on I'm going to talk about, well, I'll, I won't skip ahead. They believed in astronomy as prophetic or even astrology. And we're going to get more into that later as well. But this is very interesting to me. They believed, and this is the, this is the piece that God used to bring them. Again, we're going to get more into that. They believed in or familiar with Jewish prophecy. And this is interesting to me. Because they were familiar enough with Jewish prophecy to know some things, but when they came to Herod, they didn't seem to indicate that they understood that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. At least they didn't seem to. That's not definitive, and we're, again, we're going to talk more about that later. Initially believed the new king to be of royalty. Readily accepted a king of poverty. So, who are these magi? The things that we generally think about them that the Bible never says. I want to start with this We Three Kings song. We Three Kings of Orient. Okay, you know that song? No, you had to. Okay, thank you. So, We Three Kings. Bible never says three. So there's the first biblically inaccurate thing. I was actually just sitting here looking at that, and I was like, ah, gotcha. Bible never says three kings. We assume they're three because there were three gifts, and you know, the fourth guy would look really dumb if he didn't bring something. So, that's why we assume it's three kings. From Orient, wait, let's see, three, and then there's kings. Magi does not mean king, necessarily. It can mean royalty, but it doesn't indicate specifically king. So we three, there's one wrong. Kings, there's another wrong. And then from Orient, now it took me probably until I was, I should probably be embarrassed about saying this, but it took me about until I was a teenager to realize that Orient R is not a place. I was kind of wondering where Orient A through Q was. Uh, I don't know, but Orient R is not a place, just for those of you who are wondering. 
But we three kings from Orient, we assume that they're from Asia, from a lot of places we'll say from Persia. Well, the, the journey from Persia, especially on a camel, like we always see here, is that would take a long, long, long time. And we think about the idea of, of three kings traveling alone, months-long journey through mountains, through deserts full of, of thieves and raiders, alone without, like, why would three kings go on a journey without an entourage. We, this is the only story out there that involves kings going on a long journey without an entourage. And here they are, like, traveling with some of the most expensive things that the modern world had, completely without protection. That does not make sense. And then we assume, here's another thing we assume, they, we assume they showed up for the uh, birth of Jesus, or very close to it. The Bible suggests that he was a toddler at the time. But the, as I mentioned, the word is far less king and more scholar-priest. Here's a quote from Dr. Craig Chester. Magi often wandered from court to court, and it was not unusual for them to cover great distances in order to attend the birth or crowning of a king, paying their respects and offering gifts. It is not surprising, therefore, that Matthew would have mentioned them as validation for Jesus' kingship. When kings are born, magi scholars show up and present gifts. This is what happens, and this is what happened with Jesus. So let me say, Matthew would mention them as validation of Jesus' kingship, or that Herod would regard their arrival as a very serious matter. His, their arrival really scared Herod, who was very paranoid anyways. And it was, we have over and over, there are times, other times in history where it was established that magi would come to bring new gifts. It's written down that magi came to bring new gifts at the birth of Nero. And Herod would have taken that very seriously. So let's start in on talking about what was typically thought about the magi. So it's almost assuredly that they were of a religion called Zoroastrians. There's actually some celebrities that still claim to follow this religion, not surprisingly. And it's pagan, of course, very ancient. It's very interesting because the roots, the roots of Zoroastrianism comes from the same roots as Hinduism and Buddhism. In, and so they all came from this one place in Persia. The Greek word magi comes from the Persian Zoroastrian priests. So this magi phrase is very connected to this Zoroastrian religion, as well as Persia. And these were the ancient scholars. If we can, we imagine, you know, priests being one thing and then scholars being another thing. But back then, the scholars and priestlyhood were one and the same. They were the ancient scholars. And they had actually, as their religion developed, they became to have a surprising amount of Jew Jewish thought. But I don't want to go too far with that. Just keep in mind, they still were very pagan in mind. So I want to give you a little bit of idea about what they believed. So Zoroastrians, they believed in a Messiah born of a virgin, a virgin, raised the dead, and, and a quote from their, from their scriptures say, 
He will raise the dead and crush evil. Doctrine of a Messiah became a cornerstone to Persian, Persian religion. Isn't that interesting? It started in Iran, and at one point it was the most prominent religion, and they believed in a battle between good and evil and between heaven and hell. They believed in positive, positivity and nonviolence, and as the religion developed, it became more and more monotheistic. And this is interesting because they claim monotheism. They claim that they just have one God, even though they still believe in somewhat of a pantheon. Very complicated. I can't say I even totally understand it. But as I was researching into it, I'm like, how, how can you claim monotheism when you've got all these other gods? Anyways. But they claim monotheism. Claimed, I should say. They believe in a good force. They were very intentional. They did not worship idols, which was uncommon during this time. And so this was something that's very interesting that, they, that is also within Judaism. So Cyrus the Great became, he, he initiated this as the official religion. And he was the father of Xerxes. You might remember the famous battle, battle of Thermopylae and King Leonidas of Sparta. And as the empire grew, the empire of Persia, the religion evolved from essentially witch doctors, and this is a quote, they evolved from essentially witch doctors to scholars and skilled mathematicians and astrologers and scientists. They were the scholarly engine from which the Persian empire thrived. So these magi were very very important in the ancient world. The greatness of the Greeks, and they were the scholarly engine on which the greatness of the Greeks, and now on which the modern, modern world is based, all started with Zoroastrian priests. These were the very first academics. Very interesting. So, were they Persian? That's the big question. So here's a little bit of a historical context that might give you an idea. And there's a reason why it matters whether they're Persian or not. Again, hang with me. The reign of Darius, um, remember Daniel riding on the wall, Darius captured Babylon. You guys remember all that? They got, went and got them and brought them back, the uh, Jewish exiles. It started, his reign started with a mass slaughter of the Magi, who had become so powerful that they had assumed the throne. So basically, he took this scientific powerhouse that was once the power of the Persian Empire, and he went and slaughtered all of them and took them out. This was the beginning of the end of Zoroaster priesthood power. Interestingly, some scholars believe that this process, because of Daniel and other exiles, ended up integrating Jewish ideas and prophecy into this pagan religion and scholarship paving the way for belief in Jesus outside Judaism, hundreds of years in advance before Jesus showed up. I want you to catch that. This is very important. So Darius comes along. These scholars have taken over the, the government. He does not like that. So he goes and slaughters most of them. Well, what does he do? You, you slaughter all of your priests, of course, he would need to have to go find new priests. Well, we know where he got them. 
He went to Israel and the other areas and brought in everybody that could be considered priests. We know the story of Daniel very well. So he brought them in. And so Zoroastrianism suddenly became a mixing pot of all these other religions. And at the same time, God is working a very powerful prophetic movement within Daniel and some of his other friends that integrated into the most powerful religious system at the time and set the stage hundreds of years in advance for Jesus coming to be accepted by non-Jews throughout the modern ancient world. Isn't that amazing? So this is really important. 150 years later, Alexander the Great burned the Persian capital, Persepolis. Alexander the Great burned all the temples, all the sacred texts, and hunted the Magi down at their temples. So the chances... Oh, here, sorry. By the time of Jesus' birth, the Magi did not have the wealth or the power to pay homage to the king of the Jews. At this point, they were really more of a shadow of a once powerful and noble religion. The king of their home country was no friend of theirs, and he was busy dealing with the Roman problem anyhow. Furthermore, they had a, particularly, they had a particular political hatred for Herod. Are you starting to see why scholars and historians would come along and say, this story of the Magi makes zero sense. They weren't, the Magi were not, they didn't have the ability to travel. They were running for their lives. They were not kings that were being sent from a government. They were hiding in caves, if there were any left hardly at all. And if they went, they would avoid Herod like the plague. They hated him. This story makes zero sense. But what if there was another option? And that's one of the things I absolutely love about what Longnecker does. What if there is another option? What if there are other magi in other places in the world at that time? Enter in to the nomadic tribes of Arabia. Now we think of Persians. What if they weren't Persian? What if they were Arab? And this is where it gets really interesting. So the nomadic tribes of Arabia at the time of Jesus were called the Nabataeans. And they were Abrahamic. So, you know, they claimed lineage from Abraham, which means they were distant kind of relative cousins of Judaism. And so they would have seen themselves that way. I think we typically think of, of Israelites wandering around completely isolated alone in the desert. But we know that they had interactions with people. And this, these nomadic tribes were some of them. And so the, the capital, the city center of Na- the Nabataeans were Petra. Some of you may have been there. I'd love to go there someday. It would be awesome. But Petra, we've got, like, you guys seen, uh, <clears throat> like, uh, oh, what was that movie it was in? Sorry, I'm blanking right now. Oh, well. Anyways, uh, the famous library at Petra is in a... This was the capital of the Nabataean place. And it was not that horribly far from Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, this was a trade route that they traveled all the time. This would have been a very familiar area. And so instead of traveling 
for months, maybe years on slow camels, it would have been very easy for them to hop on their trade route horses and just take off through, the, through their established trade routes. As a matter of fact, this was commonly thought that even if the Magi were Persians, they would have to go through Petra to buy their gifts because that's where you would have to get them. And so they would have had to go through there anyways. Furthermore, Petra was known as a place of refugees and of mixing cultures, mixing of religions. They also were against statue worship. They actually had Persian magi took residence there, and they used that. So in Persia, the magi were basically gone, and then here in Petra, they were still active. And, and this is really cool. In Isaiah 42, 11, it even references Petra. It says, um, the Kendar tribe in North Arabia, that emer- they merged with the Nabataean. When it says the word Selah, it, re- it means Petra. That's the word that you use for Petra. It's the hilltop Nabataean fortress. <clears throat> so here's, here's a picture of Petra and the famous... Oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, you guys see the Raiders of the Ark. He comes out of that. It's actually a really small room inside there from what I've been told. It's far more grand on the outside, but it's cool because you go through a slot canyon. Again, I act like I've been there. I haven't, but I am told all about it. I read. <laughs> so they were traders. Journey to Jerusalem would have been familiar. And here's where it really gets interesting. You ready? Herod the Great. You remember him in the story? He's the bad guy. He goes, they talk to him, and just refreshing your memory on that. Herod wants to kill all the babies. Bad, bad, bad guy. Herod was Nabataean royalty. He was the son of a Nabataean princess. He was raised here in Petra, the capital where they would likely have come from. Not unlikely, and it's not unlikely that these scholars from Petra would have known Herod maybe by name personally. They probably saw him, they could have seen him grow up. His son, Herod's son, marries a Nabataean princess. They are very invested in strengthening these relationships. And so as you're seeing the story develop, they go and they see a sun rising. And Herod at this point in time is is at the end of his life, and they're wondering what's going to happen. What's going to happen to the new priesthood? And they see in the stars, we're going to go over that in a second, they see in the stars that there's a new priesthood developing. There's a new kingship developing and they travel out to go see their buddy herod and say hey have you picked a successor do you know what's going on is he even still alive and that's where the story gets fascinating to me and i believe that this speaks very highly of the magi if they were this connected with herod that after meeting jesus hearing the voice of god they would choose to follow God instead and basically backhand their buddy Herod. I think that says a lot about that char- their character. So what about this star? Now this is really interesting as well. Of course we have a lot of documentation about what the Nabataeans believed. They were actually near there. There's um, monoglyphs that show that they, they were the start of the, um, of all the predictions. They were the ones that started with 
the predictions about how you're going to live your life with astrology and all those other things. The Zodiac calendar is what I was looking for. They wrote the Zodiac calendar. So these people were very into stars and all these other things. So what about this? The Bible says they followed the star. Well, here's a theory about that that I found very interesting. And it doesn't cover the whole story because the story talks about them following the star to Jerusalem. So that has to be something different. But check this out. Following what they have written down, we can see what exactly they believed each star does and what it means. So star is just a generic word in the Bible, which means heavenly body. Anything up in the sky can mean star. So what they saw is the constellation of Aries represented Judea. The moon and Jupiter both represented royalty. So when the moon and Jupiter merge in the constellation of Aries, something interesting is happening as far as royalty in Judea. Okay? So we can roll back. We can roll back the astrological calendar. We can see exactly what was happening in the sky at this point in time. And what we can see is that event exactly happening where you've got the moon and Jupiter both rising, and to add some levity to it, rising next to the sun within the constellation of Aries. I believe that that's what they were looking at. Now, this is really interesting too. If we look at Chinese records, we can actually see it. Chinese astrologers at the time wrote down that there was also a comet there. So there's all this really interesting stuff happening in what they considered to be signs of royal things happening in the land of Judea. Oh, what I would give to be a fly on the wall as they're sitting there going, everything is happening in Judea. Things are happening. What is going on? And I can see them going, okay, is Herod stepping down? Did he die? They're like, what's going on here? As they're trying to figure this out, now, hold on. I want to pause for just a minute here as we're talking about this, because I find this really interesting. But there's also a piece of this story that makes me really uncomfortable, and it's probably making you a little uncomfortable, too. This is sounding an awful lot like God is using the witchcraft of astrology to foretell the coming of Jesus. And I want to touch on that for a second. First of all, though, I want to say this. This story was written in one gospel, just one, in Matthew. And it was written for Jewish Christians. In that book, he used a lot of prophecy. The ravaging of their country, the the place where they were at, the ravaging of their country deep in superiority complexes and arrogance. They believe strongly there is one way to God, and that is through Judaism. I wish I could say that mentality is long gone, but it's not. The story about the Magi would have made them very upset. Why would God invite these pagans to such an important event? To them, it would probably feel as much as if I announced that we would start merging our services with the local mosque. There would be upright. Nobody would like that. How could you possibly give away truth to pigs? It would have stuck out like a big, ugly, heretical misfit. And yet Matthew 
tried to emphasize over and over and over again throughout that book that God is bigger than our club. Amen? God is bigger. And so as we're looking at this, I think that the early Christians at the time of the writing would be pushed by Peter, by his visions of Jesus for the Gentiles, for generations that they had been convinced that they were the blessed people and that the Gentiles were no better than flea-bitten rats that cleaned out the streets and sewage. The humiliation and death of Jesus at their hands did not help that prejudice, and neither did the fact that some of them at the time were being publicly put to death and tortured. The Romans were truly their enemies, and they had every good reason to want to see them condemned and killed. Also true is the embarrassment factor. If Judaism is the one true religion or the one true people, that it would be very embarrassing for the outsiders to get honored in a place of worship of the Jewish Messiah. Foreign magicians worship demons engaged in necromancy and witchcraft? No, they have no place in our God, with our God. And yet there they were. All things that were, they were at least highly looked down on, but at the very most punishable by Jewish law, punishable by death by Jewish law. The thought of these men being a part of the story was heresy, embarrassing, apostate. If there ever was a time in the church where it was a hard time, hard concept to move beyond their self-righteousness, their phobias, and their judgments, this was it. And yet Matthew was very, very intentional about emphasizing this point to outsiders. I hope that you're getting this. I hope that you're getting how controversial this story was to the Jewish people. And it makes sense. They've spent generations upon generations being the chosen people, and yet they were ousted by dirty pagans. So if this makes you uncomfortable, yes, that was probably the original intent. And yet I find something deeply freeing in the idea that God is willing to speak to people where they're at. He's willing to literally move planets to invite you into his presence, if that's what will get your attention. Amen? I want you to hear what Ellen White has to say about the Magi as well, and that might shed some light on this story. The light of God is, this is in Desire of Ages, page 59 and 60. The light of God is ever shining amidst the darkness of heathenism. I want to say that again. The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism. Amen? If we think that we are the bastion of light on a hill while they all... No, that's not it at all. The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism. I feel like we need to have this embossed in things. What an amazing line. And as these magi studied the starry heavens and sought to fathom the mysteries hidden in their bright paths, they beheld the glory of the Creator. Seeking clearer knowledge, they turned to Hebrew scriptures in their own land. Hear this. In their own land were treasured prophetic writings that predicted the coming of a divine teacher. So we skip forward, 
And as they approached Jesus, and I imagine this because I imagine these people thinking of a king, right? Like a grand king. And what a disappointment they must have had when they entered into a dirty, humble abode, right? And I love what Ellen White says about this. She says, when they entered into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And what was their reaction? They fell down and worshiped him. Beneath the lowly guise of Jesus, they recognized the presence of divinity. Though pagan in nearly every way, shape, and form, they were able to recognize the presence of divinity simply because they were looking. They gave their hearts to him as their savior and poured out their gifts. I think about the way that we approach evangelism. I think about the way that we approach other people, and I think that sometimes it's easy to slip into this idea that my programs, my ideas, my sermons, you know, having a better sound system, having a better talk, whatever these things, it's my job to bring people to Jesus. And we we forget to look at the fact that God is working tirelessly in the background to get people's attention, and that my piece is just a very small piece in that cog. And if God, if people are ignoring that, if people are ignoring the attempts of God to get their attention, what good am I? I'm simply a piece of this. And my job when I approach evangelism, my job when I approach somebody that's suffering that doesn't know Jesus, is not to try to convince of anything, but rather to be looking for the light in their life that God has already sparked and get them to recognize that as God's leading. That takes a lot of pressure off, doesn't it? All right, so lastly, as we, as we come to an end, I want to take a look real quickly at one of the three gifts, and that gift is frankincense. And we can talk about, this is a whole other series that we could do. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. But these, these, these three gifts are often seen as prophetic because we've got a rich amount of symbolism in every single one. But I want to take a look real quickly at frankincense. Frankincense is a sap. It's a resin, um, and it's universally held in the ancient world as being ritualistic. And so when they brought frankincense, it would be very clear that the point of this is as a spiritual, ritualistic offering. Um, let's see. How much do I want to skip out on this? It, it's been depicted in murals in, in Egypt and all these other places, and it was certainly no different in the Jewish religion. Greek historian Herodias was familiar with the frankincense um, he said it was harvested from, from trees in southern um, Arabia, and I thought this was really interesting. He said it was particularly hard to get because it was dangerous to harvest because venomous snakes liked to live in those trees, and they would kill the people harvesting them. Isn't that fun? So you go out to do your job, you get some scrapes, some stuff off your trees, and something drops down from your, on your neck and kills you. That's fun. This is actually a picture of them harvesting some. And it is widely used in nearly every ancient Near East religion as sacred. 
Uh, let's see. I'll do this real quick. So this is from Exodus 30. The Lord said to Moses, take for yourself spices, and he lists a bunch of spices, with pure frankincense, and there shall be equal parts of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, a work of a work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Get that? Frankincense mixed with these other things, most holy to you. The incense which you make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourself because it is holy. And further on, Revelation 5, 8, when he had taken the book, so we're in, uh, this is a scene in heaven, taken the book, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. All right, golden bowls full of incense, which are what? Does anybody know? Say again. The prayers of the saints. So we can imagine, I think in, in ancient, in the ancient, um, model that God gave the people, there's a lot of symbolism that we're really missing that I, I think it would be good for us to have. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to light this real quick because I want you to imagine what the Israelites saw as they came into the, taber the tabernacle. The, here. And as we're going into our 10 days of prayer, I understand that they're going to be going through this process and looking through a little bit of this. And I, I, I hope that you'll engage in that because I think that it will be very powerful experience. So here's one of the visuals. So as they come in to that, they'll see this smoke rising, and I think that it'll be even stronger and more bright than this, but you can kind of see, I hope that this is showing up. And I can imagine that as I pray, my prayers are rising up to God's throne. What a powerful visual that is, isn't it? My prayers, and as I, and as I come and I smell it, I can imagine God breathing in our prayers. It's not like he's just externally looking at something. He's taking it. He's taking it in. He's experiencing it. It's, it's flooding his, his lungs, if we want to call it that. What an amazing analogy. So powerful. And as we come to this last sermon of the year, and I, I'm so honored to preach this last sermon of the year, we typically look use this time to look backwards, and we use this time to look forwards. We look at some of the things of this last year that we're proud of, some of the things that we're not proud of. We use some of those things to look forward, and we come up with our new year resolutions, and, you know, there's always that, like, next year is going to be better. I remember saying that in 2019. It didn't work. But over the past few years, I feel like that feeling of optimism seems to have given way to dark, cynical, cynical skepticism. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but I don't really feel like people believe that things are going to get better anymore. Things just get worse. Hang on. Get out of here. Okay. People feel like things are just going to get worse. And I feel like there's a general loss of hope moving into this new year in our general communities. And so where does that leave us 
I believe that leaves us in a very unique position because everything that we believe revolves around the idea of hope and faith. We have hope and faith that Jesus, that God is in love with us. We have hope and we have faith that God wants the best for us. We have hope and we have faith that God has a way out of our sins and out of our troubles. Amen? Thank you. Okay. We have hope and we have faith that God can provide a better life for us now. And we have hope and we have faith that God has a future that stretches through eternity for us. In a world that is filled with hopelessness, may we hold on to our hopefulness. And may we hold on to this idea that even the prayers of pagans, even the prayers of the the evil ones, the people that don't believe the way that we believe, the people that are doing things they shouldn't be doing, the prayers of all these people are still rising up and acceptable to God because they are searching. And that we can come into their lives and say, God has heard you. And you can have hope. And the things that you've prayed are still filling the lungs of God. And he is still pleased. And he will do anything to bring you to him. And just like God sent Daniel many hundreds of years before to plant Jewish texts in the hands of pagans, I believe that God plans for all people out there to plant light in their life. The invitation of Magi at the birth of Jesus, written in the stars, destroys the notion of select holy people, that God only talks to one. But God is for all. Amen? And that the prayers of all those who are searching are sweet, sweet aroma in the throne room of God. Praise God, this is who we worship. May we be open to looking for those, searching. May you go out into your world to those who are hopeless and see and say, God has looked upon you. He has heard your suffering, and he wants to put you in a powerful, powerful place, just like he did with those magi many, many years ago. Many blessings on you. God, please Bless those sitting here this morning. Give us light to see. May we help to be the light in people's lives. If we're the light put there for, for other people in our lives, God, show us how to do that. Show us how to be the light to them. And God, may we better understand. And maybe we better see. And maybe we better believe that our prayers, their prayers, all prayers of searching people, reach your throne room and our pleasing scent to you. Amen.